marked as Easter. It's why we meet on Sundays, because it was the first day of the week that Jesus rose from the dead. And from that time forward, the church has always gathered on Sundays, the first day of the week. But Easter Sunday, that one day of the year that we take to focus on and remember Jesus' resurrection is just a wonderful time for the church. If you're a guest with us, we are glad you are here. And uh, it may be that you've come with family. It may be that this is the one Sunday of the year that you go to church, and that's fine. We, we pray that the Lord would use his word in your life to draw you to himself. Easter is, for the people of God, the most important of all holidays. If you have seen any news over the last 12 to 16 hours, you know that celebrating Easter here can be very different than celebrating Easter in other parts of the world as we watch brothers and sisters give their lives in bombings in the nation of Sri Lanka. 200 plus was the last number that I saw. That number may climb. My stats may not be updated. If you have not heard that, I would encourage you to look it up after the service. But you can go and look at the news reports. And uh, I actually want to, as we get going this morning, I want to pray, especially for not only the believers in Sri Lanka, but believers all over the world who, because they celebrate Easter, because they are believers, because they name Jesus Christ, suffer in, in ways that, that we just, we can only grasp through the power of the Spirit and understanding what it means for them to suffer for Jesus' name because we are united with them in the person of Christ by faith. Father, we, uh, we want to lift to you this morning so many people across the world, people we don't know, and yet people who have come to faith in you and so are also part of your family. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we know that many of them pay a price, a much different price than we pay, to worship you week to week, and especially on Easter, a holiday, a sacred day, a day that the enemies of the cross and the proclamation of the gospel would seek to make a statement, would seek to claim some sort of victory over your people and over you. And Lord, it may be that, um, that you would wait, that you would tarry, that you would give more time for repentance. It is, Lord, that you, in your perfect will that you have ordained that your people would undergo persecution while we wait for you. We know, Lord, that you are with them, Lord, that you are with those who are left and, and hurting and aching. Lord, may they count it a joy. May they, as the early church, count it a blessing to suffer for the name. In your name we ask these things. Amen. Yes, Easter is the most important of all holidays. Christmas is important. We know that. But Jesus' birth alone didn't give him victory over sin and death. Jesus died on the cross. And by paying that price, he 
won forgiveness for us, forgiveness for our sin and rebellion against God. But how could he give us new life? How could Jesus intercede for us? Or how could Jesus send the Holy Spirit? How could death be finally conquered if Jesus did not rise from the dead? None of that could have happened. Even Jesus' death was not enough to complete his mission. The cross was not the end. Jesus had to rise from the dead. Jesus had to take his life back. I wonder sometimes at Christmas music, Christmas albums, we have music projects built on Christmas. Is not Christmas music part of the holiday and our culture at the time? There ought to be entire music projects dedicated to the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection was the greatest display of his power and his authority, showing that he is Lord and King. We celebrate today a living King. Today he lives. Today he rules the world. Today he shepherds his church. The fact that Jesus is a living king has unparalleled meaning for the world and for the nations. More than any war, more than any empire, ruler, or discovery, or catastrophe, or development. More meaningful for the world and its peoples is the fact that Jesus is a living king. There is one rightful ruler of the human race. And he is the one to whom God says in Psalm 2, You are my son. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And then says to the nations, to the rulers of the world, Therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish In the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That is a cry to the nations to cease raging against the Lord and his anointed one, but to enjoy enjoy tremble before him. That's Psalm 2. But this also, the fact that Jesus is a living king, has unparalleled meaning for each of us. Every one of us, every person who hears me today, there is nothing more important, there is nothing more significant for your life or about your life than Jesus' resurrection. It is more meaningful than your heritage, than your race, than your citizenship, than your career, than your dreams. It is more meaningful than financial success or even personal health. It is on this meaningfulness that I want to focus today. And I want to give you six cries to celebrate the risen king. Among the many places in the Bible, we're going to look at six passages that talk about the resurrection. And each one of them is a rich Passage that could be its own sermon, its own message, but we're going to keep to kind of a survey and just really focus on the central truth in each of these 
and why Jesus' resurrection is meaningful to each of us today. So first of all, let us celebrate the risen king because Jesus' resurrection breaks the power of sin. Jesus' resurrection breaks the power of sin. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So Jesus' death and his resurrection, then we see, establishes a pattern for us. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion, no power over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. You see the pattern? As death no longer has dominion over Jesus, because he was raised from the dead, so sin no longer has dominion over you, because Jesus was raised from the dead. And this breaking of sin's dominion, though, calls for action on our part, doesn't it? Look at these verbs here, beginning of verse 11. This consider or count, reckon. This is a decisive act of the will. You are to decide, I am dead to sin because sin's power has been broken over me. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Let not sin reign. How do we not let sin reign? It means resist it. Deny sin. Deny it a place in your life. Present. Do not present and present. This is the the two sides. Don't present the members of your body to sin, but instead present them to God. Present them as those who have been brought from death to life. We're going to see in a number of these passages this morning how we have been brought into union with Jesus. And it is because he has risen from the dead that we have raised from the dead. We have risen. We have been raised from the dead. As those who have been brought from death to life. How else can that happen? Because God counts, because you have believed in Christ, that you actually died with him, you have been raised with him. Have you already been brought from death to life? Are you someone who through faith has already entered into Jesus' death and his resurrection? If so, then no matter how tempting sin is, no matter how well sin disguises itself, no matter how well it promises joy and satisfaction, no matter how besetting it is, how it clings, 
you have been given freedom from the power and dominion of sin. Because Jesus has risen from the dead. You are under grace because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. In one sense, that means that for us, there is no excuse. (laughs) Right? There is no excuse. Let us celebrate the risen king today because his resurrection breaks the power of sin. There is, you are not a victim. You are no longer a victim of sin. We may stumble, we may fall, but you are not a victim, nor am I. Secondly, let us celebrate the risen king because Jesus' resurrection makes labor meaningful. It makes labor meaningful. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, your labor here is not talking about your, your job, your vocation. We hear the word labor. We think labor day. We mean we know we have to work for a living. But here it is, the work of the Lord. That's what Paul's talking about with your labor is not in vain. The work of the Lord then is all and any effort or sacrifice made for Jesus and his kingdom. That's what the work of the Lord is. It is any and all effort and sacrifice that is made for Jesus and his kingdom. It might be acts of kindness and generosity. It might be enduring rejection and persecution for Jesus' namesake. It might be building other people up. It might be serving the church through your gifts might be sharing the gospel with someone. All of these things are the work of the Lord. All of these things are labor. And sometimes those things seem unfruitful, don't they? You ever feel like you just you give and you serve and you share all without result at times? Paul says, as hard as it is, as unfruitful as it may feel at times, as poor of a job as you may think you do in your work for the Lord, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. That word is empty. It is not empty. Paul says, be steadfast, be immovable. And in fact, be abounding in the work of the Lord. But, and you're probably thinking, wait a second, where's the resurrection in this? Because the grounds for this promise that our labor is not in vain is found in the 57 verses before this one. Paul has just proclaimed that Christ has been buried and raised on the third day, that this is core to the gospel. That's back in verse 4. And then he goes on to retell of all of Jesus' appearances, including even to himself. 
He then explains in verses 12 through 34 at length that if Jesus was raised from the dead, it means we will be raised from the dead also. And that Jesus will conquer all of his enemies and that he will destroy death. And then Paul explains in verses 35 through 49 that our resurrected bodies will be fit for glory. They'll have to be transformed. They have to be made for eternity. And then verses 50 through 56 describe what this great resurrection event will be like and that it will result in final victory over death. And Paul includes this challenge to death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And then in verse 57, Paul announces, Thanks be to God who, what? Gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 58 then, therefore, this command in verse 58 hinges on this this astounding, profound truth that Jesus was risen from the dead physically, bodily, and that means he will raise us from the dead physically, bodily, will transform us to make us fit for eternity, for immortality, will vanquish sin and death finally. And then he says, therefore, be steadfast. Jesus' resurrection ought to make us steadfast in the work of the Lord. Be immovable. Jesus' resurrection is a reason to be immovable in the work of the Lord, to even abound in the work of the Lord because Jesus rose, he will raise you to immortality. He will slay death and he will declare you victorious. So every effort you make, every sacrifice you make counts for eternity. It counts, it matters. Even if you don't see the fruit, even if you feel like you fumbled it, Jesus rose from the dead. That makes your labor meaningful. That makes your work matter. So let us celebrate Resurrection Easter Sunday today because Jesus' resurrection makes your labor and mine meaningful. Thirdly, Let us celebrate the risen king because Jesus' resurrection fills grief with hope. It fills grief with hope. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And here, of course, sleep is a picture of death. It's a metaphor for death. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive 
who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, and with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Wow, now Paul is peeling back, isn't he? He's peeling back the veil, and he is telling us, he is revealing to us how this is going to happen that Jesus will return and that he will declare as a command and raise his people who have already died out of the ground. And one thing that this means, that this whole passage tells us, is that not all Christians will die before Jesus returns. There will be some Christians alive, whether that's Next week, or whether that's 40 years from now, however long that is, there will still be believers alive when Jesus returns. And Paul's word of comfort to these believers in Thessalonica is that you don't need to worry about having missed it. That Jesus, that you, and you don't have to worry about, the, that number one, that you've missed it, because first of all, those who have died who belong to Jesus will be raised first, and you don't need to mourn or be filled with grief in the same way the rest of the world is, as though because they died before Jesus returned, they somehow will miss it, that they will get left there. Paul says, no, when he returns, he will raise them first. They will be raised first. But notice that Paul doesn't say, you may not grieve, but rather, you may not grieve as others who have no hope. There is a hopeless grief. There is a kind of grief that has no answer. There is a kind of grief that has no comfort. Maybe you've been to a memorial service or a funeral for someone who didn't know Christ. I have. They are very, very different affairs than those that I've been to for a dear brother or sister in Christ. Very different. There is despair. There is brokenness. There are feeble attempts to try to build up. They're in a better place. But they really have no confidence. They have no hope. We grieve as those filled with hope. Why? Because in verse 14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And we know that he will raise his own from the grave. Those who die in Christ will be raised, and they will be raised first. So our grieving is fundamentally different because of Jesus' resurrection and his promise to raise his people. And you can have that hope and that confidence for those whom you love who know Christ. You can know that Jesus will raise them and bring them to himself. And you can know for yourself that when you look across 
when you look across the bar at death as it comes, that it is not the end, that Jesus will raise you also, and that he will raise you first. We may ache, we may long, and we may even at times flinch. We may fall into the temptation of despair because of death, whether that's someone else's or whether that's our own. But in the end, we declare victory and we live with joy in the midst of grief. Jesus' resurrection fills grief with hope, and that is a reason to celebrate a living king. He has not abandoned us, and he will not abandon us even to the grave. What a day to remember this when we look at other believers who have been murdered, slaughtered, because they gathered this morning to celebrate Easter. Well, fourthly, we celebrate the risen king because Jesus' resurrection empowers our mission. Jesus' resurrection empowers our mission. Matthew chapter 28 is a very familiar passage to most of us, beginning in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, these are the disciples gathered, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This, of course, is the Great Commission. And the commission itself is summed up in the command, make disciples. But this commission is sandwiched. Do you see that? It's sandwiched between verse 18 and the end of verse 20. In verse 18, there is a claim of authority a foundation, a basis for the commission that Jesus gives. And at the end, Jesus gives us a promise, a promise of his presence to the end of the age. But what has triggered this bestowing of authority? When Jesus gathers his disciples in this final scene in the Gospel of Matthew and leaves all of us as the readers, his people, the church, to read this commission on the basis that he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth and that he has the power to promise that he will be with us to the end of the age, what is all of that based on? It is based on the event immediately before this in chapter 28, verses 1 through 17, which is what? Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Jesus hasn't ascended yet. Already, Jesus says, because he has risen from the dead, all authority has already been given to him. How can Jesus be with us always? Guiding, guarding, empowering the event in chapter 28, verses 1 through 17. 
Jesus is with us to the end of the age because Jesus is a living king. He is already risen. So you see, the whole basis for the Great Commission is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. It is what transfers the authority to him. It is why he gives us a promise. I will be with you to the end of the age. And though he doesn't say it here, what is the end of the age? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when he returns and raises the dead in him. So Jesus' resurrection empowers our mission. Both through his authority and according to his promise to always be present with us. Fifthly, Jesus' resurrection secures eternal life. We celebrate the living king because Jesus' resurrection secures eternal life. John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is this wonderful and the only place in in the Bible where this is recorded that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Remember, Lazarus has died. He's been in the tomb for three days. Jesus actually delays in going there. Mary and Martha have sent messengers to him, asked him to come to come heal their brother because he had been ill, Jesus actually delays intentionally because he knows that he is to raise Lazarus from the dead. And so he waits. Then he goes. And in chapter, 20, uh, chapter 11, verse 25 and verse 26, we have Jesus's, part of Jesus' conversation with Martha. He comes out to greet him. And she's, what happened, teacher? You love Lazarus and he's died. And if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. We've seen you heal. We knew you could heal him. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? You see, Martha knew that Lazarus would be raised again someday in the future. Jesus says he'll be raised. And she says, I know, at the end, he'll be raised. And Jesus says, but The one who raises him is here right now. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Do you believe this? Martha says she does. And Jesus is about to prove this. He is about to prove he is the source of life, that he has the authority to give life, to reverse death and vanquish it. But in these words, Jesus is demonstrating what he has already been declaring in John chapter 10. And so I want us to backtrack back up into chapter 10 beginning in verse 25. Because in chapter 10, Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication. John even tells us in verse 22 that it's wintertime. He's walking in the temple. 
And the religious leaders corner him. They have been trying to corner him over and over again. They are frustrated because they are trying to trap Jesus in his words. And so once again, they confront him and they say, tell us plainly, stop playing games with us. Are you the Christ? Are you claiming to be the Christ? They don't really want to know Jesus' identity. They want to trap him in the claim. So make the claim, are you or aren't you? Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. How do they do that? Verse 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now think about this promise that Jesus makes. I give them eternal life. Jesus is not saying they will someday experience eternal life after they have died. Then they get eternal life. Jesus is saying, I now give them eternal life. Understand, you already have eternal life. Eternal life is not a state of being that you get to when you die. Eternal life is what you already possess because you have trusted in Christ. Do you understand that? The life you live now is eternal life. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. When Jesus is talking about perish, he's not talking about physically dying. He's saying that the eternal life that you have now when your body dies is the, the very life that Jesus gives to you by which he raises you from the dead. No one snatches you out of his hand. You belong to him. And Jesus is, he even creates this picture that you as his child, as his sheep, are in his hand. And no one can snatch you out of. And the father lays his hand over Jesus' hand. And he's greater than all. And no one's going to snatch him out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. That is security. It is an astounding promise. Does Jesus have the authority to make such a claim? He will prove that he does when he raises Lazarus. But what is the basis for this authority? Again, we have to backtrack. We're going further back up in John chapter 10. He has already laid the foundation for this declaration that I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. Back up in verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. For this reason the father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Oh, do you see it? No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I 
have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father, this authorization, this mission I have received from my father. You know, sometimes the New Testament talks about God the Father raising Jesus from the dead. Other times it talks about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God raising Jesus from the dead. And sometimes Jesus says it about himself. This is one of those cases. Jesus says, I have the authority to lay my life down. No one's taking my life. The guilt of murdering, of taking my life, will fall on both the Jews and the Gentiles. The whole world is guilty. But no one actually takes it from me against my will. I lay it down. And by the same authority, I take my life up again. But do you see the connection all the way to this promise? I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus has already said, I take up my own life by my own authority. Therefore, my sheep, I will give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them from my hand. The security. And then he goes and he shows it. He demonstrates it. He puts it on display. I am the resurrection and the life. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. We celebrate a living king today because Jesus' resurrection secures eternal life. The eternal life you already have. Lastly, we celebrate the living king because Jesus' resurrection exalts us with him. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So as Jesus has risen from the dead, he has ascended to heaven. Paul portrays him here as seated in the heavenly places. He is already ascended and he reigns there. You can see that being saved by grace then unites us to Jesus in such a way that we are, we are already with him. Here comes this union again. We are in union with Christ. And it is because, it is by grace, because God did all of this while we were still sinners. We were still dead in our trespasses. We didn't bring ourselves to life. We didn't bring ourselves to an understanding of the gospel. No, he made us alive together with Christ. And we see this then, this exaltation. It may feel strange to apply the word exalt to us because we often use the word exalt like we use worship. We exalt you, O God. We exalt the king. We worship you, O Lord. We tend to reserve that word in such a way, but, 
But when the word exalt is talking about us, it means something like, uh, something like share in his glory or receive reward, be rewarded. For example, James chapter 4, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This exaltation then in Christ accomplishes three things. It made us alive together with him. In Jesus' resurrection, God did what Jesus promised in John chapter 10. He gave us eternal life. He raised us up with him. This is in position, right? We are in Christ. We are united to him because of our faith in such a way that when Jesus was raised, we were raised with him. And he has seated us with him, meaning that we already experience Jesus' glory and victory. We are already there. It's not hypothetical. It isn't theory. It is a present reality. Our salvation and eternal blessing are already secure. And because God has already declared it, God has already raised us with Christ, we are already seated with him. We are already exalted. God's purpose in the coming ages, what's that? This age will end. What are the coming ages? Eternity. It's the rest. It isn't timelessness, or I should say it isn't time goes on and on and on. We think of that, right? We think of eternity as just time continuing, never ending. Time ends. That's what eternity is. It is no time. There being no time. You can talk about that over Easter dinner. Okay. <laughs> Timelessness. The coming ages. And what is God's purpose in the coming ages? To show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness to us. You know... I think about our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. I think about these murders in Sri Lanka. And I think about how crucial it is that we as God's people, wherever we are, even in a place like America, which, yes, maybe is we are getting more persecution, still not quite like the rest of the world in so many places, but how crucial it is for us to dwell on the reality that God says, that we can't see, that we can't perceive, but that we are already seated with Christ. That we are already the recipients of eternal blessing and that it is, verse 7, immeasurable. It's immeasurable. We celebrate the living king because his resurrection has sealed our future exaltation and already made it a present reality. So listen to me today. Celebrate Easter because today is a day to know his immeasurable grace and kindness. And Father, may we 
worship now and then go forth from here in true joy and celebration. A joy that abides, a joy that remains even in the midst of difficulty, maybe even in the midst of paying a price to name your name. Lord, we know that you have risen and we praise you. We give you glory and we give our lives to you. It is our delight and our joy to be your people and to long for and await your coming where we will behold you and see you in your glory and be transformed to dwell with you forever. In your name we declare these things, amen.